Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Where does spaghetti come from? Well, in 1957, the BBC news program Panorama visited the Swiss countryside to find out. Many people are often puzzled by the fact that spaghetti is produced at such uniform length. But this is the result of many years of patient endeavor by plant breeders who've succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. After picking, the spaghetti is laid out to dry in the warm alpine sun. This broadcast was, of course, an April Fool's prank, but hundreds of people called in the next day to ask how they could grow their own spaghetti trees. This isn't the only myth about the origins of pasta, so to help us uncover the actual true story of spaghetti, I'm now joined by food historian Massimo Montanari. He's the author of A Short History of Spaghetti with Tomato Sauce. Massimo, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You wrote a book called A Short History of Spaghetti with Tomato Sauce, which uh, turns out to be kind of a longer story and a much more interesting story than I would have thought. And we start with Marco Polo. 
who did not bring back pasta. Uh, so what was the real story there? Yes, Marco Polo went to China and he saw spaghetti, but he already knew spaghetti because in Italy, spaghetti were made since at least 100 years before Marco Polo. So hmm. China and Italy are the two main countries in the world sharing a culture of pasta and spaghetti. But these are two different stories. I, I love the example you talk about, the, these wild rumors. In 1929, American journalists wrote the Macaroni Journal, where he attributes the discovery of pasta to one of Marco Polo's sailors whose name was Spaghetti. So I just like... The press just made things up. Yes, this is a very funny story. But the fact is that many, many people still believe in this story. So how far do you have to go back where you would recognize what we consider today to be a modern Italian pasta, like a spaghetti or fettuccine or whatever? There is a, an historian that uh, thinks uh, that pasta culture was born for the first time in Persia. And from there, spread west to Europe and east to China. But uh, the story of pasta possibly begins much earlier. The ancient Greeks and the Romans made pasta, but pasta was a thing used for making a broth or a soup more thick or for making something like lasagne. But... Uh, in ancient cookery books, there is not the idea that pasta is a category of food. This new idea begins only in the Middle Ages. After conquering Persia, the Arabs took to Italy from the 9th to the 11th century the tradition of drying pasta, transforming it into a, an industrial, commercial item. And the second novelty was the shape of long pasta, what we call now spaghetti. But the two things are connected because a thin, long shape can be more easily dried. Let's talk about boiling pasta. In the Middle Ages, there was this notion, you know, many cultures have, they would boil, you know, oats for oatmeal for hours or overnight. Uh, here, pasta could be cooked for an hour, an hour and a half. I mean, <laughs> I read that and go like, really? I mean, you, you, dried pasta is, is cooked for two hours? Th then what? Then what? Uh, uh, the first thing to say is that uh, typical Italian taste for pasta al dente. And uh, this is a new taste of pasta only when pasta becomes a main dish. In previous uh, centuries, uh, pasta was often used as a side dish. And it is uh, it's very interesting to see that uh, still today, in those countries where pasta is still used as a side dish, France uh, or Germany or England and so on, the taste for pasta is very tender, very very smooth, <laughs> and the Italians call it scotta, too much 
cooked. Now, you also mentioned the shorter cooking times may have had something to do with pasta stands in the streets of Naples. Correct, because Naples is the place where the main uh, street food becomes pasta. And uh, always uh, pasta with cheese, this important meeting uh, between pasta and the cheese. This is a typical Neapolitan model that only at the end of the uh, 19th century becomes an Italian model. And that's why Italians uh, in the United States uh, at the end of the 19th century are uh, recognized as uh, mangia macaroni, pasta eaters. So let's get to tomatoes. They show up in the 16th century from Mexico via you know, Spanish... It was used uh, to make a sauce for meat and other things in the 1700s, 1800s. But it really, you're right, it really wasn't until the early 19th century that a red sauce, a tomato sauce, would be paired with pasta. Yes, yes, that's true. Because for centuries, we have white pasta, pasta seasoned with cheese. So today in Italy, we have uh, a, a typical gesture to add grated cheese over pasta already seasoned with tomato sauce. Historically, this gesture was the contrary, because in the 19th century, we see tomato sauce added to a pasta already seasoned with cheese. With the birth of food industry, Tomato is one of the first vegetables that is canned. So uh, the experiment to try uh, tomato over pasta becomes more accessible and become typical of Italian cuisine. Do you think... um other than what we've talked about, is there one thing that Americans just don't understand about pasta that Italians do? <laughs> yes, I, I think that uh, for an Italian, pasta is much more than, uh, than a food. That's why for us, uh, uh, spaghetti are a symbol of national identity. It's, it's something that we feel inside us, but also for understanding one apparently simple dish, such as spaghetti al pomodoro, spaghetti tomato sauce, we must understand that we are not today what we were yesterday, but we are what other people have invented together with us. Massimo, it's been, uh, it's been my pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. That was Massimo Montanari. He's a professor at Bologna University and also author of A Short History of Spaghetti with Tomato Sauce. Okay, now it's time to take some of your questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, we've talked a lot about salt and pepper and 
I think they should get a divorce, and they have nothing in common whatsoever. So do you ever use something other than black peppercorns to go with salt? You know, like some people use cumin, for example. Do you have something else you often pair with salt? I don't knee-jerkedly add pepper to everything. I mean, I like a lot of the chilies you do, the, you know, Aleppo and the Urfa and other seasonings like that. But black pepper still has its place. I think I told you recently I ate a potato knish from a deli, and the secret ingredient was black pepper. Hmm. Black pepper and potatoes is just a match made in heaven. Or butter. Well, butter always, yes. <laughs> and salt. Yes. But yeah, I think Aleppo pepper, which is now grown in Turkey, it's fruity. It's not that spicy. It's fruity. It's a different herb, though. Yeah. I mean, it's a different spice, excuse me, than black pepper. It's a cool one. I like it. I put it on hard-boiled eggs. Okay. Time okay. to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Sheila from Canada. Hi, Sheila. How can we help you? Okay. Well, I'm happy to talk to you. I listen to your show all the time. Thank you. I had a question about caramel. Sometimes I see condensed milk used to make caramel, and I'm wondering why. Like, what is the scientific purpose other than ease of use? Well, it's usually sweetened condensed milk, and you cook it in the can, and you end up with essentially dolce de leche, which is more like a butterscotch flavor than a caramel flavor, the difference being that when you make a caramel with sugar, you get sort of a burnt taste from the sugar getting that dark. Some of it has to do with the flavor if you're looking for more of a butterscotchy flavor or if you're nervous about making caramel. I tend to make a dry caramel, which is, means you just put sugar in the pan and cook it directly over heat, stirring constantly and paying a lot of attention till it turns to the caramel you want. And then you get it out of the pan, and then you can add the cream or the milk heated very carefully. The trouble with when you add water to sugar is it tends to caramelize. So a lot of people have trouble making caramel like that. So the advantage of the sweetened condensed milk is that you just put a can into a pan with water, simmer it for several hours, and then let it cool completely, and you end up with, boom, something that looks like caramel but tastes more like butterscotch. Yeah, yeah. Chris? Well, I think the reason, I mean, to go back to the original question, condensed milk or sweetened condensed milk was used in climates that were very hot for two reasons, a Holstein is not going to be producing a lot of milk when it's 100 degrees out. And secondly, it's shelf-stable, and of course, without good refrigeration, milk was extremely dangerous. And that's why up until the 1850s or 60s, that's how evaporated milk got started. I think there are a lot of times when sweetened condensed milk actually is a better thing than uh, what it was substituting for. Right, right. Also, making caramel from sweetened condensed milk is indeed easier, I believe, than using sugar. But you don't get that burnt sort of edge, the bitter edge you get when you use just straight sugar. And I found you don't get that color. Like, I want to use it for, like, millionaire bars, and I don't get that color. Yeah. Caramel color, like for Twix. Right. And also, I've done the sugar method, the dry sugar, and I've also seen it done with corn syrup. Yeah, that helps the sugar not to crystallize. Right. Yeah, and my caramel turns out better with corn syrup. Is that just because the sugar doesn't crystallize and get clumpy? I use the dry sugar method. I use a skillet now. Me too. I just sprinkle the sugar all over the skillet, and the edges will start to go faster. And you can see the color move faster, and you don't need any water for that, which I really like. Yeah. Oh, 
Okay. That's good to know. I hope that was helpful. Thanks, Sheila. It was. Thank Take you. Care. It was really nice to talk to you, too. Nice to Same talk to here. you. Take care. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Kathy Dowis. How can we help you? Well, Sarah, I am from Charleston, South Carolina, and I work at Grace Church Cathedral, where you interviewed my dearest friend, Sue Cromwell, about tea room. Oh, oh, that was so much fun. We had pimento cheese sandwiches and several other things, as I recall. Yeah, you did. So I have a question. A friend of mine gave me about seven pounds of sun-dried tomatoes. They're gorgeous. (laughs) They're chewy. They're just perfect, except they're tasteless. And it's just yuck, bland. This sounds like a re-gifting. Doesn't it? <laughs> it but could seven be. pounds. It does seven pounds of flavorless sun-dried and, and flavorless. They're not in oil. They're just dried. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, you're going to have to cook them. So okay, I can do that. I would get a bunch of garlic, and I would not grate it or mince it. I would slice it with some water and maybe some salt. I don't think herbs are going to help very much. Cook it for twenty minutes or so to the nice and soft, half an hour. And then put them in a food processor with some olive oil. Maybe you could add a little vinegar to that as well, like a balsamic. Taste it as you go. If it doesn't have enough flavor, it might need some more salt or whatever. When you put them in a food processor, you could add a little more garlic. You could add a little more pepper. You could add a little more spice. Check the salt level. And freeze in ice cube trays. That would be my Oh, good idea. Answer. I basically agree. The only thing I might do differently is add a little vinegar to the cooking liquid in the beginning, not at the end, when you're simmering them with the garlic. And I would add some herbs, like some woody herbs, like rosemary or something. Or if you want to leave them whole, you can also, you know, simmer them in uh, vinegar and water until they're plumped up and then dry them really, really well and then layer them with garlic and herbs and olive oil and a little lemon juice again. The only thing about that is it won't last forever. You know, that would be if you wanted to have a little jar in the fridge to use for the next couple of weeks. Seven pounds might take a while to Yeah, Yeah, this is true. This is true. (laughs) Actually, I have the best idea. Wait till the next Christmas and re-re-gift it back Ah, and say, I have this great gift and package it and put a big bow (laughs) on it and pretend you don't remember that she gave it to you. Or have them over for dinner and make a pasta or whatever. Use the sun-dried tomatoes and say, thank you so much. They taste so good. Omitting the fact that you had to actually spend an hour cooking them. (laughs) Kathy, it's a good problem to have, I guess. Yes, it is. Could be worse. Yeah. Thank you so much. I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you, calling. Kathy. Thanks. Okay. Take okay. care. Okay. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. One more time, questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Evan from Philadelphia. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, my fiance and I are finally having our wedding this upcoming July after postponing due to COVID. So we're very excited. Good for you. Thank you. But with the wedding comes the registry. And I love to cook and I just don't know what cookware set to put on the registry. So I was hoping you could help me out. Number one, don't buy a set under any circumstances because that's how manufacturers dump the stuff they can't sell. But here's what you should buy. A stainless steel triply that is it's stainless steel on the outside and the inside, but has aluminum 
probably on the inside. Aluminum conducts heat well. Stainless steel is impervious to reacting with foods. Okay. Get a four-quart, get a two-quart pot, get a six-quart Dutch oven, Le Creuset okay. or Staub, or you can actually get some pretty inexpensive versions of this online under $100, which are pretty good. I do have a Staub, good. and I love that one. So. Yeah, Staub's great. And then the last thing is a skillet. I'm a huge fan of carbon steel because they're relatively inexpensive. If you season them properly, they're great. So get like a 12-inch carbon steel skillet and then one 8-inch skillet. If you want to get nonstick, that's fine. Uh, the other ones, however, I would not get nonstick. Nonstick gotcha. is only good for a couple of things like okay. you know, cooking shrimp and eggs, that kind of thing. Instead of buying 10 items, you're going to buy four or five and get okay. the good stuff. Several companies make a triply with double handles, a straight-sided skillet, 12 inches, with a handle on either side. It's sort of like you could both saute something in there, but you could also make sort of a stewy pasta sauce in there. And I, okay. I just like the double handles. And just one other caveat, I agree with Chris about nonstick. You need it mm-hmm. for omelets and eggs and pancakes, and, potato and just, pancakes. And just throw it out every year. Yeah, that's, that's the caveat. That <laughs> really, you definitely, they're yeah. not making the ones with PPE and PFOA anymore, which are toxic. Okay. They're getting better. Gotcha. They are, they are. And they're I've had better. some success with some enamel-coated ones. In my household, by the way, I have a trick, which is I have a carbon steel pan that I've carefully loved and burnished over the years, which is hidden in a secret drawer. And I bought an 8-inch nonstick skillet, which I leave out on the stovetop. <laughs> so everybody else has used the nonstick. And then I secretly go in and find my carbon steel. That's awesome. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. It's funny that you have secrets in your kitchen because oh, I yeah. do a few little sneaky things in my Oh, my knives. I hide knives all over. Right. But the other thing is the husband can be a little clumsy when he's washing dishes. So I don't let him wash any of the wine glasses. I hoard them all in my office until he's not around and then I go wash them and put them away. But anybody who just happened to meander into my office would be, do we have a problem in here? No, in my household, my wife always says, I'll do the dishes, dear. She doesn't like what I do. I see. I'm not up to snuff. Mm, Convenient, I'd say. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear about food's greatest failures from McDonald's Arch Deluxe to Crystal Pepsi. That's coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. 
My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Dr. Samuel West, a psychologist and also curator of the Museum of Failure. Dr. West, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you very much. You were on a few years ago to discuss the uh, disgusting food museum. Now we're talking about the Museum of Failure, which I think is equally interesting. So uh, before we get to some food examples, mm. um, I, I love products to fail because of a complete lack of cultural understanding. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Harley-Davidson cologne, mm. the, the hot road cologne, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean— who could yeah. possibly sit in a conference room and go, the one thing that Harley-Davidson stands for is cologne? <laughs> I mean, it, Smelling good? <laughs> that didn't go over too well. 
Well, that was an example of hubris, corporate hubris, right. and, and where Harley Davidson with their massive brand recognition said, right. hey, let's, let's start making all kinds of bullshit items. Right. <laughs> uh, and the, the cologne was one of those where they just slapped their logo on something. Uh, they had Barbie doll clothing. They had um, <laughs> Christmas decorations. They had all kinds of official Harley merch. And what happened was it alienated the bad boy free rider like aesthetic sure uh, so they made a lot of money on those merch enterprises for sure but it was short-lived well it's totally antithetical to the whole notion of running harley yeah, exactly okay let's get to food so th there's some great examples of big companies trying to increase market share by of course coming up with new products one example is the mcdonald's arch deluxe hamburger yeah so what problem was that product actually trying to solve well McDonald's was struggling with their image of being only for kids because they made a big deal out of, you know, celebrate your birthday, McDonald's. There's the Ronald McDonald clown and there's a Happy Meal and everything. So right. McDonald's, like, we got to attract some adults. So they, they launched the McDonald's Arch Deluxe, which was a burger for adults. It starts with a full quarter pound of beef with fresh toppings, our chef sauce on a bakery soft roll. McDonald's Arch Deluxe. If it were any more grown up, We'd need to check your ID. It's McDonald's with a grown-up taste. <laughs> when I see it today, I'm like, okay, there's nothing that spectacular about the burger. Um, it's just it was bigger and more expensive than um, their other burgers. And that was one of the defining characteristics, that it was a luxury burger that was more expensive. The problem was twofold. One was that people associated McDonald's with cheap food. And right. going to McDonald's to buy a luxury burger just didn't strike anybody's interest. That's one problem. The other problem was the, the advertising campaign, which was... Awful. Yeah. You see images of kids tasting this Arch Deluxe, which looks like a beautiful burger, by the way. And they, they take it and they bite it and they, they, go, they yuck. go yuck and they start to make vomit faces and stuff. And they're like, this is a, an adult burger. It's not a kid's burger. And it's just there's something about seeing kids not like the burger. You're like, oh, well, I don't want to try it yeah. either, you know? I mean, yeah, and they spent $300 million. $300 million on market research. In, you know, 30 yeah. years ago. Um, Crystal Pepsi. I, I don't even remember Crystal Pepsi. What? How old no, are you? Old enough to remember Crystal Pepsi. Yeah. Um, so what was the concept of Crystal Pepsi? Why was it intriguing? So today it's, it's sugar that's the bad guy. At the time there in the 90s, back then it was artificial colors that was the bad guy. So anything that was clear, anything that was without added colors was considered pure and, and healthy. So um, Pepsi launched Crystal Pepsi, which is a clear soda. It, it, looks, you know, it's, it's, it looks like water and um, it tastes like cola. Great idea at the time because that's what was in. That was in, in fashion. And um, <laughs> what happened was they launched it and it turned out pretty good. People actually thought it was interesting. L let me stop you. You yeah. wrote, in the Super Bowl commercial, they sold <laughs> afterwards $474 million yeah, that's, by that's March. good. I mean, <laughs> so, so the launch, and this is really interesting. Some of these products have brilliant launches yeah. but then die a horrible death. But it started that well, right? So the short version of that story is that they initially did very well, but then people lost interest. And actually, Crystal Pepsi doesn't taste that great. That's one version of the story. The other one is far more interesting, where the success of Crystal Pepsi uh, alarmed Coke. 
And Coke is like, oh, we want part of this action too. So hmm. they created a kamikaze product. Now, a kamikaze product is a product that's created and launched to kill the competitor's product. Hmm. So Coca-Cola launched Tab Clear. So Tab was right. their worst, like their trash brand. So they took that, created Tab Clear, uh, did a heavy launch and put it right beside Crystal Pepsi in every supermarket. Like they went all out. Hmm. And, <laughs> and Tab Clear was intentionally horrible. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so, so. Hence kamikaze. Yeah. Yeah. So people would like, oh, wow. In the supermarket, they go, look at this. There's some cl like clear sodas. This is awesome. They'd buy the, the Pepsi and the tab. They'd taste the tab go, yuck. And say, clear sodas are nothing for me. Isn't it brilliant? It's now that, brilliant. That, I mean, uh, New Coke was idiotic, but, but yeah. tab clear is brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> Diet Cola with a totally mysterious flavor. More than just a clear cola. Tab clear. Taste and decide. So here's one that I guess may not be true, uh, but you mentioned, I just got to mention this one, Colgate beef lasagna. Oh. Now, I, I think Colgate said they never have any record of doing this, but, but anyway, I just had to mention it. All right, so I have some updates on this. Okay. Um, so the Colgate beef lasagna, I found it when we did the research for the museum in, in 2016-17. And I was like, this is fascinating, but I couldn't find any anything online. Right. And it was just too good of a, I mean, this is too interesting to not include it in the Museum of Failure. And then it's in the museum, and then we got a whole bunch of publicity. And then Colgate, their lawyers contacted me and said, <laughs> uh, you know, we have no recollection of a Colgate beef lasagna. And then... A year ago, some investigative journalist contacted me and was doing a story on this and, and you know, dug much deeper than I did and found that Colgate did indeed have kitchen entrees in the 19... <laughs> now I can't remember if it was 50s or 60s, but they actually tried and launched a series of kitchen entrees and it wasn't beef lasagna, it was crab meat and dehydrated chicken. Oh, my God. Even worse. Even worse, yeah. So when Colgate's saying, when their lawyer says, we have no recollection of yeah. a Colgate he, beef lasagna, he's right. But you didn't say anything about crab meat. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of really dumb extensions, uh, Gerber singles for grown-ups. Yeah. Gerber, they had the baby food, a big respected brand, and they decided that maybe more than just babies would like to eat food out of a jar. So <laughs> tiny little portions. <laughs> they had a they had a series of dinners for one in a jar. It's 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 in like a the same size or slightly larger than the baby food jars, but it's the same same jars. You know, they had uh, beef bourgogne, they had uh, mashed fish dish in, and it was baby food, but catered to adults. And and the thing about it is like the idea of it is just crazy, right? But then also like the name of it. Girl, like yeah. singles like you're a single person you're so not only are you single you can't find a partner but you also like to eat your dinner from <laughs> a jar sometimes and i think in recent years i love the fact people think that technology will sell a product when it mm. actually makes the whole experience much more expensive and incredibly yeah. stupid and much worse 
Uh, a great example is the Juicero oh, yeah, 2016. Sure. So this device was a pretty big tabletop device. It was, it's really heavy. So what it is, it, you buy exclusively via subscription, you buy diced fruits and vegetables in different mixes, right? So it's, it looks like a blood bag at the hospital. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a bag. It does. It, it does. It's a, <laughs> yeah, and so you, you get these sent home and inside the bag, that's the chopped fruit, right, or vegetables. And then you take it and you put it into the, the, the machine and it scans the barcode and it's connected to Wi-Fi and it, it won't press it if the best before date has, <laughs> has uh, passed. And then what it does, and this is amazing, it's so powerful. So it presses the juice and the minerals and vitamins and all the goodness out of the, the fruits and vegetables into your glass that's underneath the, the device. What is this? It's a juicero. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know what that word means. What's it's a, a new juicero? Word. Okay, define it for me. Uh, juicero, the best juice ever. What comes out of the Juicero is so fresh that it shouldn't even be called juice. It should just be called, I don't know, squashed produce, because that's what it is. Our founder, Doug, is straight up made of juice. Literally, there's juice in my veins. Um, and that sounds amazing, and people bought it. There's a lot of people who bought it, so it was quite popular. And 700 bucks is quite a lot of money. And then you still had to pay, like... 8 to $15 for each glass of juice, each packet, um, until somebody on YouTube showed that you could just <laughs> press the juice with your hand. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Whoops. Oops. Um, so finally, lifesaver holes. I mean, I just like, I wish I had been in that meeting. People go like, well, there are these holes. What if we sold the holes? You know, it's like it, it, the whole point of the lifesaver is sort of that mouthfeel, right? with the circle, the, the lifesaver shape. Uh, and the hole is just a little piece of candy. Yeah, so the, just like you can buy donut holes at the donut shop, they thought, like, we'll do lifesaver holes. Hey, look who's making waves. Lifesaver's holes. The huge taste of lifesaver's candy in tiny, delicious little bites. Lifesaver's holes candy. Get what you've been missing. And it wasn't a failure, sort of marketing or concept-wise, but the plastic packaging itself, you couldn't store and dispense these lifesaver holes in any feasible way. Um, I, I think that might be just an excuse because it might have been a bad idea from the start. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you had a Pez dispenser, right? Yeah. I mean, Pez is a great example of the most horrific candy in the world, but the dispenser <laughs> makes it cool. It's, it was created to help people stop smoking. What? Yeah, the original, really? the whole thing about the, the package is yeah. kind of like a cigarette, and oh. the, the feeder thing, it, it only later did they make it into children, like Mickey Mouse heads and whatever. Originally, it was like you want to stop smoking and you have to fidget with something. So you open the Pez and you get you one of those and you, you don't have to smoke. Well, there's another category. Products that failed at one thing that became super successful. But excelled at others. Yeah. By putting a Mickey Mouse head on top of it. Uh, Dr. West, it's always a pleasure. Uh, I, I love the Museum of Failure. Uh, I just love failure. But these are just wonderful examples. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Samuel West, curator of the Museum of Failure. 
The museum has been on tour since 2017 in various cities around the world. Now they're offering a virtual exhibition at museumoffailure.com. You know, I love failure, especially when the people who failed persevered and then went on to great success. People such as Elvis, who was told to go back to truck driving after singing Blue Moon of Kentucky at the Grand Ole Opry. Henry Ford, whose first two automobile companies failed. And Oprah Winfrey, who was fired from an early job as a television news anchor. So it makes me think that failure is essential for success. And I think this is especially true in the kitchen. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to hear from Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chocolate olive oil cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm great. This week, it's cake, check. It's chocolate (laughs) cake, double check. It's chocolate (laughs) olive oil cake, triple check. Olive oil in cakes is really nothing new. I guess chocolate olive oil cake may not be new either, but it's new to me. So why olive oil and chocolate cake? Well, I mean, olive oil in cake is a great concept on its own, or really oil in cake. Oil adds, you know, the fat that you want in a cake, but because that fat stays liquid, whether it's warm or room temperature, it doesn't solidify like, say, butter might. It keeps that moist texture, and the cake has a lot more longevity. So, you know, you could sit it out on the counter for a while. It's still going to stay really nice and moist. I have to say I'm not worried about longevity with chocolate olive oil. <laughs> You're going to eat it all in one sitting? Yeah, but it's like chiffon cake, which has half a cup of oil. Or it's like carrot cake, right? Carrot cake's got oil. Yeah. Absolutely. And in this case, we're using olive oil rather than a neutral oil or canola oil. And that's because this is a common combination in the Mediterranean. They obviously have tons of olive oil at the ready. And so instead of adding butter to their cakes, they would add olive oil. You have some options here on a flavor of olive oil to choose. We chose a light olive oil, which has a little bit more of a neutral flavor, but you could certainly use an extra virgin olive oil. You're just going to get more of that kind of fruitiness and peppery flavor. Or you could even do a combination of that stronger extra virgin olive oil with a more neutral oil like safflower oil or grapeseed oil or something. So there's one other ingredient in this cake that is really surprising. (laughs) It has some espresso powder, which we use all the time, but what's the secret ingredient? Why so much of it? (laughs) So obviously it has chocolate, bittersweet chocolate and cocoa powder, but it also has lemon juice. It actually has quite a lot, right? How much does it have? It actually has six tablespoons of lemon juice which is a fair amount. Obviously, when you cook citrus, it does kind of lose a little bit of that astringency. It's just more of a mellow flavor, but we really loved it here in this really rich chocolate cake. It adds a little bit of brightness. There's also acidity in lemon juice. Um, We're using baking soda here, so it's helping with the leavening as well. So it adds just a little bit of balance because, you know, chocolate cake is rich and it adds just a lightness to it that we loved so much. So you got a cake with two kinds of chocolate and olive oil, and you're feeling good about its light because of the juice? I mean, come you on. Know, it's a nice flavor. It yeah. does. Yeah, it's nice. Perks it, up the flavor. Uh, right. Perks okay. up the flavor. And so this is a basic cake with a batter, one bulb, but then you whip some egg whites, fold those in. Yeah. 
What kind of cake is this? Is this a one-layer cake? It's a definitely a one-layer cake in a springform pan. It's going to bake and kind of puff up, and then as it cools, it'll kind of sink down a little bit, as often is the case with a cake that you have whipped egg whites. It's really sort of fudgy and brownie-like on the inside, has this really nice plush mouthfeel from that mm. oil in there. Just really moist and tender, but with tons of chocolate flavor and that little bit of brightness from the lemon juice. So to borrow your term, a plush chocolate olive oil cake. <laughs> great chocolate flavor, but with the lemon juice and the olive oil, great flavors and also a wonderful, sumptuous texture. Lynn, thank you so much. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for chocolate olive oil cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt tells us how to make the most perfect scrambled eggs. We'll be back in just a moment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for Sarah and I to answer a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jeff Stein calling from Lake Wabika, Connecticut. Hi, Jeff. How can we help you today? 
So I'm looking for, you know, a very specific bit of advice. Mm-hmm. And that is whether I get both a spice grinder and a coffee grinder or use one interchangeably. You know, I'm trying to keep my small kitchen as tidy as possible, but I also want to make sure I don't have coffee grinds that smell of cumin. Right. I would actually would recommend having separate grinders. How do you make your coffee now? So I do both the French press and uh, the Bialetti, so one of those little stovetop espresso makers. Okay, but you, you grind your own beans? I don't. I've been buying them pre-ground, but I'd love to be able to just buy some actual beans and keep them in the freezer. The point is, I wouldn't use the same grinder for the spices. You can clean it out after you've done the spices, either by grinding up rice or grinding up bread. But it won't clean it out completely because, you know, spices release oil. Chris, what do you think? (laughs) Under no conditions should you ever... (laughs) grind spices and coffee in the same thing. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's not going to work. You want a coffee grinder where you can adjust the grind and you're going to get that grind because if you're doing trip, it's medium. If you're doing French press, it's coarse. If you're doing the Bialetti on top of the stove, it's fine. Two, the coffee grinder has to have a big enough hopper. So if you're making 10 cups of coffee for a bunch of people, you can grind a bunch of coffee at one time. Three, the blade grinders are probably better for spices and you need a tiny one for that. The Skepschult, S-K-E-P-P-S-H-U-L-T, Skepschult. It's a cast iron round spice grinder, and the top fits into it. It's also round, and both the top and the bottom are coarse. So you can take a small amount of cumin or whatever you want and grind it by turning the top clockwise and counterclockwise a few times. That does a great job. It doesn't take up any room on your counter. It's not electric, and you don't have to worry about constantly shifting between coffee and spices. So that's what I would get. So if he got this little grinder hand thingy for spices, and then he got a burr grinder, that wouldn't take up too much space because the little grinder for the spices is small. You could just put that in a drawer. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think I'm out of ideas. Right. I'm not out of opinions. but No, no, this is quite clear. Excellent. (laughs) Take care. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. One more time, questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Krista from Ann Arbor, Michigan. How can we help you? So I'm a pretty good cook. I pride myself on being able to navigate most situations in the kitchen. However, corn tortillas have failed me on more than one occasion And I got pretty frustrated last time because they just turned to mush. What I'd like to do is learn how to heat them up in a way where they're pliable, but not crumbly. Great question. You know, recently I was in Mexico. I was in Jalisco, south of Puerto Vallarta. And we spent a lot of time talking about tortillas and which ones were good and which ones aren't. A few things. Commercial tortillas are made from a sort of inferior process in masa. So they tend to fall apart, especially corn tortillas. And the corn tortillas that I've found commercially at supermarkets are garbage. I mean, they're just awful. They're gnarly. They're coarse. They taste like cracked corn. You know, corn tortillas in Mexico don't have a strong corny taste, and they're very soft. In Oaxaca, they make 
corn tortillas that are just like flour tortillas in texture. Number one, I would not buy a corn tortilla here unless you know somebody locally or a great purveyor online. I would use a wheat tortilla. Secondly, you could try the classic method of brushing the tortillas with oil, put them on a baking sheet, cover with aluminum foil, throw in a warm oven for a little bit to warm them up and make them pliable. I've stopped buying corn tortillas in a supermarket because I've never found, you know, a good brand. Yeah, I admit to buying supermarket, but it looks like I will stop doing that and invest maybe even in a press and make my own because it's been pretty gross. (laughs) Well, making them yourself actually is not something I used to do, but it's so much better. I mean, it's night and day. There's a place that makes tortillas that's very well known now nationally. You mail order them. Actually, you know what? We'll try to post this on our website in the radio part of the site. That'd be great. That's probably worth doing. It's one of the few things I would definitely order online for high quality. Yeah, it's just not worth it. No, yeah. it's not worth it. Um, at any rate, first of all, I was going to say how nice you're from Ann Arbor. I went to U of M. Go blue. Somebody else who's a U of M grad is Rick Bayless, and yeah. he has wonderful restaurants. And online, I'm sure there's something on YouTube of him making fresh corn tortillas. He makes it seem so manageable. You know, you might really want to start making your own. I think I might. All right, Krista, thanks. Thank you both so much. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Next up, it's J. Kenji lopez Alt. Kenji, uh, what's going on? Uh, Well, I thought that we'd talk about eggs today um, because everybody always likes to hear about eggs and debate eggs. And anytime I write about eggs, it's always like a huge article. (laughs) Well, it's because how to cook them is so perilous or just in general? Well, I don't know. I think it, it always happens that way because eggs are the thing that people cook. You know, it's the first thing people learn how to cook. And it's probably one of the most common foods people learn how to cook. And there's always so many rules about it. You know, how you boil your eggs or how you scramble your eggs or poach your eggs. There's these hard and fast rules that you're supposed to follow. And everybody has different opinions. But, uh, yeah, I thought we'd talk a little bit about scrambled eggs. So this is going to be a food fight because <laughs> I, I I have a very particular Basque method for doing scrambled eggs. Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you go with your method first? Well, the Basque method is to scramble the eggs in a couple tablespoons of olive oil. Okay. And the theory, since you're a scientist, mm-hmm. uh, the theory is that oil gets hotter faster than butter for obvious reasons because butter contains water. And that Mm -hmm. it transfers the heat to the eggs, especially the liquid in the eggs, which steams quickly and Mm -hmm. makes them fluffy quicker. So there's there's more heat. There's more heat transfer, and you get a fluffier egg fast. So that's my um, solution to scrambled eggs. But, But you have a very different method. So as you mentioned, yeah, the hotter your pan is when you put your eggs in, the fluffier the eggs end up because right. the moisture in those eggs turns into steam and it expands and right. it puffs them up. Whereas if you go low and slow, you know, like that method that Gordon right. Ramsay popularized where you go really low and slow and you're constantly stirring them, then you get these really dense, creamy eggs over low heat. Well, isn't that sort of the old French method? That is, yeah, a French method. Yeah, yeah. 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 So depending on your pan temperature, you can get them fluffier or denser. Right. One of the issues, though, is that it's difficult to tell what temperature your pan is. So one of the techniques that I like right. to use is I actually just put a few drops of water in my pan, right. um, you know, like maybe a teaspoon of water or so as I'm preheating it. And I just kind of swirl that around. And I know that as soon as that water has finished evaporating, then my pan temperature is going to be right at around 
212 degrees. Um, and for me, that is a good temperature to then add my butter in because I know my butter will very quickly melt, but it's not going to start browning because I don't want any of those sort of right. brown butter solids. Um, and this, this technique works whether you like your eggs sort of harder cooked or softer cooked. I use a trick that uh, our, our mutual friend, uh, Charles Kelsey, um, you know, who owns Cutties oh, yeah. in, in Brookline, yeah. he had a uh, French omelet recipe there where he'd cut up tiny little cubes of butter. Oh, I remember that recipe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He actually, I talked to him, yeah. you know, when I was working on the story, and he actually nabbed that technique from uh, Daniel Baloud. Um, but you cut butter up into hmm. tiny little cubes, yeah. uh, and you whisk it in along with the eggs. Um, and what I found is when you're scrambling eggs like that, the butter actually works really well to regulate the temperature of the egg. So you get this kind of huh. more um, interesting texture because some of the egg sets, but then these little cubes of butter keep the egg right around them cooler. So you get these little pockets of sort of richer, creamier eggs. Mm. So it's almost like you get like fluffy curds, but with a sort of almost like a, a denser, hmm. saucier egg around them. Right. Um, and it also gives you a little bit more leeway as far as um, how quickly they set so you don't end up overcooking them. The biggest trick that I found actually came when I was watching a video. Uh, my friends Steph Lee and Christopher Thomas, who run this YouTube channel called Chinese Cooking Demystified, they have a video on there for this technique called uh, Wampoa eggs. They're a style of eggs that are cooked by the Tonka people who live on boats in Guangzhou. But essentially, they take duck eggs and they beat them with a little bit of fish sauce and then they fry them in woks very quickly. And so you get the wok very hot and then you kind of pour the egg inside it. Hmm. And then very, very quickly, uh, you kind of fold it onto itself. So only the bottom gets cooked and it ends up with um, is a sort of like wavy mass of eggs that have a, a sheen of hmm. barely set liquid yolk on top. But in their video, what they do is they stir in a starch slurry into the eggs before they uh, start frying them. The idea being that the starch will actually inhibit egg proteins from sort of bonding too tightly together. So you get a lot more leeway. Hmm. Even if you slightly overcook them, they're still going to stay creamy. So it makes it much easier to control the final texture of the eggs. But if you combine um, you know, that starch technique with the little cubes of butter, um, you get these incredibly creamy, rich scrambled hmm. eggs that, you know, whether you like them hard or soft, they come out really nice and creamy. Very different from that bass style, of course, because, you know, these are sort of richer, creamier eggs opposed to the fluffier style, which is not to say one is better than the other. <laughs> Look, I mean, the, the one thing is you can do my recipe in 30 seconds, start to finish. <laughs> That's I mean, true, yeah. You have to make a slurry and you have to have cold butter and cut it in little tiny pieces. So there's, you know, of course. The, the Kenji method is usually fraught with a great deal of research <laughs> thought, but but also some prep, right? I some mean, prep, yeah. Um, yeah. These are these are some kind of weekend eggs, I think. You know, they, they take five to ten minutes to do as opposed well, to thirty okay. seconds. <laughs> and so is this a cornstarch slurry? Uh, so cornstarch works. Um, you you actually get slightly better results if you have potato starch just because oh. it gels at a slightly lower temperature. And and are you doing a nonstick skillet or you, a seasoned yeah, you can, carbon steel you skillet? Can, I mean nonstick is obviously the easiest unless you have a very well seasoned right. um, carbon steel skillet. But you know, this is one of those things where you know, carbon steel or cast iron, whatever anyone says, it's never going to get as nonstick as, as uh, right. nonstick, obviously. Well, we need to have the Chris Kenji uh, scrambled egg smackdown. <laughs> All right. But it's okay to like one style of eggs one day and a different one the next day, right? Well, Kenji, I'm going to go try that. I, I do remember Charles's recipe with the, the butter for the French method. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like I like your notion of the slurry. I will give it a shot, and I will honestly tell you what I think on this show. All right. So, Kenji, thank you. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, and also author of The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. 
That's it for today. You can always find this episode in all Milk Street Radio episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch our television show, or learn about our magazine, the latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. We're on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week and every week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Media Director, Melissa Baldino. Executive Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 